Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC, this is Money Talking at Work, a collaboration with the Harvard Business Review. I'm Charlie Herman. Wait a minute. I have a wonderful idea. I say, that's a brilliant idea. I've got a crazy idea. It could be big. I feel like I spend a lot of my time trying to come up with good ideas. Just give me 24 hours to come up with a brilliant idea. All of you with an idea that was so simple and brilliant, you get one in a lifetime. And once I come up with what I think is a great idea, well, sometimes it seems really hard to get people on board. I've got an idea for a story. How did you come up with this idea? And then I start to wonder, is this just all in my head and that maybe my idea isn't that great to start with? What an idea. A crazy, bad, wonderful idea. It's enough to drive a person, okay, me, crazy. You could drive a person crazy. You could drive a person mad. So to figure out how to recognize a good idea and then get people as excited about it as I am, I had a really good idea, and that was to turn to this guy. So my name is David Burkus. I'm a writer, a speaker, a podcaster, and an accidental professor, or as I like to say now, a recovering academic. He's written a lot about innovation and how people and companies come up with good ideas. So it was kind of a relief to hear that I'm not alone. I mean, what you describe is a problem that plagues all of us, right? We, we operate under this assumption that the world will just magically see how amazing our idea is, right? If you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door, which is a, a weird phrase, and actually you can't find it in writing of who the original source is, and that's probably because the, the phrase itself is sort of rubbish, right? Great ideas get rejected all of the time, right? and history is sort of littered with those stories. And the truth is that we have this kind of natural bias against it, because for an idea to be creative or innovative, it has to be new and it has to be valuable. So it has to depart from our past experiences. That's the new piece. But also when we judge value or utility, we have to rely on our past experiences. We have to rely on what we know. And and so you're asking something to depart from what we know, but also we're going to use what we know to judge it. That's a recipe for disaster. And it becomes really, really hard to sort of sell your idea in that capacity because you have to know uh, what triggers to, to sort of use and how to do it. So some of the time it might be that your idea is terrible, but a lot of the time it's just that we're really bad at judging great ideas. Yeah, I was going to say, why is that a recipe for disaster, both looking back as well as uh, looking for the new? So if we operate under this assumption that the world is great at recognizing great ideas, if we're not being honest about how hard it is to get a new idea to have traction, then we can assume that every idea that ever faces rejection faces rejection because it's terrible. Right? But we know that's not true. I mean, I, I love to talk about uh, Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring was this incredibly famous ballet. Now it started a riot among its participants because it was so poorly received on its opening night. So we can look at an initial reaction and go, oh, well, people didn't see it and the world always recognizes great ideas right away. So obviously this is a bad idea. But that's not the truth. The truth is it takes a little bit for those ideas to get momentum. Some ideas get momentum quicker than others. So initial rejection is not indicative of, of quality at all. But at the same time, I feel like there's such an orientation, especially in the business world, towards what is new. I work here at WNYC, and we're creating new podcasts. We're trying to come up with new content. Um, I know, you know, people that work in other news organizations, it's always like, what's the new thing that we can do? You think of any corporation, they're always, you know, advertising is always looking for the new client, not the existing client. And yet, when it comes to something new, there's always that hesitancy of moving forward on it. Why? 
Well, so, I mean, we give lip service to this idea that we want great ideas, but this is a, a cognitive bias that's kind of hidden to us, right? And there have even been people who have done studies that show people will say, yes, I will recognize the great idea when we're in the lab and you have to choose among a bunch of them. And then when they're presented with it, they consistently vote for the one that's sort of safer, right? Like we want new ideas, but we want new ideas that we have sort of something we can connect it to in the past, right? That's why everybody you know, in the movie industry, you always pitch your movie as it's like this movie, but in space, right? Or in business, we always say it's like Uber, but for this. And what we're trying to do in that is say, yeah, it's a new idea, but connect it back to something else. Because if it doesn't have that connection, then we get really fearful because we don't have that past experience piece to judge it on. So, I mean, do we know a good idea when we see it? So, I mean, we as humans don't. I think there's there's a way that we, if we're trying to sell our idea, there's kind of a litmus test that we can ask. There's some interesting research uh, from a gentleman named Everett Rogers, and he really studied how ideas and how innovations move throughout populations. And he found kind of five factors that all ideas sort of have. And I like to look at these as this is the litmus test. If you're trying to figure out whether or not your idea could actually get traction or if you're trying to figure out whether or not to invest in an idea and will it get traction, do you have these sort of five things? And, and of course, I know that begs the question, what are those five right, things? That's what I thought you were about to say. <laughs> what are those five things? So, and, and real quick, those five are relative advantage, compatibility, complexity, trial ability, and observability. Relative advantage is, does it actually have an easy-to-see advantage over the existing standard? That's the thing that gets a lot of people excited, even when it's our idea. But again, it has to be able to be seen compared to something else. So the next one is compatibility. Compatibility refers to how much the idea is kind of the logical extension of the status quo or how much it builds off of something we already know. So we joked earlier about it's Uber for, but Uber itself needed to have compatibility compared to the actual taxi industry and the car service industry. You needed to be able to see that this isn't a wholly new thing. This is an improvement on what we already know. That's compatibility. If there's a huge cost to trying it because it's a totally new thing and we can't comprehend it, then we're not even going to give it a shot. But if we can see it as just this next step in a process that we're already familiar with, we have a better shot of getting that idea adopted. Okay. The third one that you had on your list is complexity. Yes. Yeah, so complexity refers to just how easily can you understand it? Can you understand the new product, et cetera? I mean, there's that old maximum that if you have to explain the punchline of a joke, it's not actually funny. And so it's the same way with complexity. If you can't say what the idea is to a five-year-old and get them to kind of understand it, you're going to have a really strong uphill battle to fight when you're trying to win people over. Number four, uh, and not really a real word, is trial ability. So trial ability is basically how low is the bar to trying it. If there's a steep cost involved in somebody adopting the idea or testing the idea, et cetera, then it's less likely it's ever going to see the light of day. So if you think about a lot of startup culture, this is where that minimum viable prototype idea comes from. What's the smallest iteration of the product that we can use to get people just to try it and see something. It's also really important from a moving an idea through the market. If people are going to buy it, et cetera, it can't necessarily have a huge cost to it. You know, I, I actually like to use the example of the Segway. The Segway was kind of a cool invention, but at $2,000, very few people were willing to even try it. If there were some way we could have made it easier to try, maybe more people would have seen it. Now, that's, that's predicting the future around the Segway. I have no idea. But the point is, if you have this totally novel thing and there's a huge cost for people, consumers, or the people who have to green light it to even try it, you're much more likely to get a no. Okay, so the final thing that you need to get your idea accepted is observability. 
So uh, observability refers to how easy it is for other people to see the results from the people who have been that first triers, the early adopters, right? This is why every fitness routine and every diet product has a before and after photo. You need to be able to easily observe <laughs> the change that came from the relative advantage. So if you can point to the early adopters and you can say this great advantage happened because they tried it and you should try it too, and again, to go back to trial ability, and it's a low cost to try it, you're much more likely to get that adoption to continue to spread because we can easily see, well, so-and-so did it and it worked for them, so I'll try it. This almost sounds like a checklist. Should you use it that way no matter how big or small your idea is? Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. I, this to me is is the litmus test for structuring your pitch, if that's the idea, or even just judging whether or not if you come up with 100 ideas in a day, judging or not which idea to put more energy in. If it can meet these criteria, it's got a much better shot than if it can't. And if it can't meet that criteria and you're still really, really excited and passionate about it, you have to ask, how can I adapt this idea to better suit these kind of five criteria? It's, it's not about being able to predict which ideas are going to be a hit and which are not. That prediction game is really, really risky, but it is about shortening your odds and making the chances of success more likely. And that's what these five questions, this sort of checklist can do. Are there alternative ways to try and get your ideas approved other than this five-step process of compatibility and trial ability and, and whatnot? So again, I think this is a question of how do you shorten your odds, and you can run this as a litmus test to shorten the odds. But the biggest thing is really to have this mindset that everything is a prototype, right? So if the biggest damage you can do to yourself is to think that my idea has to be implemented 100% like I initially thought, instead of saying, okay, I, I pitched it, and we got some feedback, and then we changed it, and we iterated on that. Your most likely chance of getting these ideas accepted beyond just this five-question litmus test is to be willing to let your idea change as other people get a hold of it. It's funny because as you're talking, one of the things that stands out to me is that, as you said, a lot of new ideas are looking ahead, but they're also looking backwards. And I'm wondering about some of the things that have been really radical that have really led to big changes. They're radical in the sense of like there's a break from the past. Um, and like you said, in the, the Rite of Spring, there were riots that happened and there was just sort of this upheaval about it. But now it's sort of recognized for what it is. Is a really radical change, is that just rare and also really hard to know at the time until later when you look back on history. Well, I mean, a little bit of both. Uh, we, we tend to labor under this illusion, though, that the really huge disruptive innovations were wholly original. And that's not really true. I mean, all of us are building with the same building blocks. All ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas. So you take any idea, whether it be, I mean, a radio show or an amazing invention, and you can boil it down to the things that came before it and see how that combination of different ideas combined to create this new thing. Now, whether or not it scales, et cetera, I think, and we look at it as this big disruptor, has to do with these kind of five factors. But there's, there's nothing new under the sun. All ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas. And so we'll always have a little bit of the past in our future. David, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. David Berkus is the author of The Myths of Creativity, the truth about how innovative companies and people generate great ideas. You can also find a link to his Harvard Business Review article, Get Buy-In for Your Crazy Idea, at our website. What about your success or frustration in getting people to accept your ideas? Have you found that there's a best way to pitch your idea or the right time to do it? Or have you found a way to figure out if your brilliant idea just may not be as great as you think it is? Tell us about it. Send an email to moneytalking at wnyc.org. Of course, you can also reach us on Twitter. Our handle is at moneytalking, and I tweet at Charlie Herman. Money Talking is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Bill Moss and Rebecca Ibarra. 
And one person who always has great ideas is Amy Poftak at the Harvard Business Review. I'm Charlie Herman. Thanks so much for listening. 